It's time to accelerate. This is Alec, Andy's son. Andy's on vacation this week, so I'll be filling in for him. Welcome to episode 652. Oh, just filling in on the intros, not the interviews. Don't worry. Welcome to episode 652 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Andy is joined uh, this week by Jeff Hyman. Jeff is the chief talent officer at StrongSuit and author of Recruit Rockstars, the 10-step playbook to find the winners and ignite your business. In their conversation, Jeff and Andy dig into Jeff's step-by-step playbook for hiring top sales producers. Jeff advocates for a standardized process for recruiting and interviewing that mitigates the risks of hiring, minimizes the impact of emotion and gut feel on the hiring decision. It's a very different process from how most companies recruit and hire salespeople. But if you're a CEO or sales leader who's frustrated by your hit uh, and miss sales hiring, then this is definitely an episode that you need to pay very close attention to. If you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, go to andypaul.com backslash 652, the number 652. Andy often hears from listeners that are looking for a new sales challenge. He tells them one of the most important elements to career success is aligning yourself with the right company, one that develops its employees, values their customers, and has a portfolio of category-leading products that can compete with anyone in the market. With its recent acquisition of Level 3, the new CenturyLink has become a world leader in providing cloud security, real-time communication, hybrid, and IT and managed services. If you're a top sales producer and you're looking to challenge yourself in order to take your career to the next level, then visit CenturyLink.com slash Accelerate. That is CenturyLink.com slash Accelerate. And join their talent community and see if CenturyLink is the right step for you in your career. All right, let's get to it. Here's Jeff Hyman and Andy. Jeff Hyman, welcome to Accelerate. It is great to be here. Thank you so much, Andy. It's great to have you. Great to have you. So uh, I have a standard question I ask all my guests to start the show, and that is, in your opinion, what's the single biggest challenge facing sales reps today? The noise and, uh, and severe degree of competition makes it really hard to differentiate uh, your your product or service, no matter what field it is. And so you need to be laser focused and laser clear on what that unique uh, aspect is, that unique selling proposition. If you're not clear, get clear. And if it doesn't appeal to particular target audio, uh, customers, I, I just move on and, and find a better target that's a far better use of time than trying to convince people who are not a good target that yours is the right product because they have now have infinite choices. No, I like that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think, unfortunately, though, I think the uh, behavior of sales managers sort of compounds the issue. And not, not sales managers necessarily per se, but management. Yeah. Because certainly in, let's say, the software world and SaaS space, where you know, the whole premise of, of the sales process is now increasingly come down to sort of activity-based versus, you know, quality conversation-based. That's right. And, Absolutely. And the incentives, CRM was a big driver of that, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly from a command and control standpoint, but now yep. also, too, with big data is, you know, the whole idea is, gosh, we need a 4X, 5X, 6X pipeline coverage and yep. and and not without really even tying what those coverage amounts are really to, to data or, or, you know, optimizing productivity or efficiency or whatever. And so, yeah, we we're creating 
more of the noise ourselves. I, I describe it as uh, tar- if you get the right target, right, the activity level is a lot easier. It almost takes care of itself. If you got the wrong target to begin with, if you're going after the wrong people, which often is not the fault of sales, it may be the fault of marketing or everyone's fault or no one's fault. But if you're going after the wrong target, it doesn't matter what your activity is. Well, yeah, I agree. And I think that that's sort of part and parcel of that, that problem is that we don't encourage salespeople enough, and this is a broad we, but to you know, ruthlessly disqualify that's the, right. pe- the people walk away. Who, who really aren't going to buy, to your point, really walk away. And you know, this is going to come back a little bit to the, the topic of the conversation we're going to have today about recruiting and hiring sales um, yep. because – yeah, managers need to know when to walk away in that that instance as well. So, um, it well, also just, works. It works against the the DNA and the personality of so many people in sales who are very competitive, don't like to lose, don't like to take no for an answer. Those are admirable qualities to some extent, but every minute you're spending time wasting time with one prospect is time you could be spending with a much better prospect and a much better target yeah, and a much, much better likelihood of close. Well, that's where the logic is so perverse. Cause yeah, sales will say, well, you know, I hate to lose. So I'm not going to give up this prospect. I'm like, my theory is I hate to lose. I'm going to fight the battles. I know I'm going to win. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Love yeah. it. And so you need to change your orientation. You want to win? Hey, do it my way. Cause I'm, I'm going to fight the battles. I know I'm going to win. Yep. All right. So I'm just, Briefly about Jeff, who's joined me. Then you can tell we're having a good conversation. So Jeff is the author of a really excellent book that I just finished reading this week called "Recruit Rock Stars: The Ten Step Playbook to Find the Winners and Ignite Your Business." So, um, yeah, I did really enjoy the book, and I and I think I mentioned to you before we started recording is that maybe because it resonates well with me because it it to many degrees mirrors the process that I I try to have my clients adopt, but. Uh, you certainly have more content there than I do, but <laughs> but the the thing is, you know, it even says recruit rock stars. It's not just about recruiting; it's about the whole process of recruiting, interviewing, and onboarding. Yes, and but they're all part of the same process. They are, and you. It's very hard to take any one of them in isolation. What I tell my clients is that this is something you either decide to do or don't decide to do. There's really uh, no middle ground. Right, and if you don't want to do it, that's fine. This is a lot of time; it's a lot of work. Um, but if you get it right, it is transformative. On the other hand, if you don't want to do it and you want to hire B players, and you can absolutely build a business that way, there's nothing that says you have to do this, right? And by the way, it doesn't even have to be my process. Just have a process, well, which yeah. most com- which most companies don't. No, no, and that's and so that's really a good kickoff point. Is you know the the primary objective is to have a standardized process. I call what I teachers i call it a data-driven yes hiring process yep but what you're trying to do is you're trying to reduce the risk just the inherent risk with hiring people i mean you're dealing with a complex individual you can never completely know them while you're interviewing them or understand you know are there all their foible potential foibles or shortcomings but you can try to reduce the risk hiring is so risky you're about to invest an enormous amount of money um and bring them into your home or your company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can screw up your culture. They can screw up your relationships with your uh, customers, prospective customers. They, they can really shit the bed. Yeah. And uh, you, to your point, you want to de-risk that as much as you can. It's not impo- It's not possible to de-risk it 100%, by the way. 
No, it's not. But what you can do is is break sort of the pattern of lazy, what I call lazy hiring, right? Where you yep. rely on gut feel or you ask these you know stupid pointless questions like, you know, tell me your strengths and weaknesses or or a point that you brought up, which was one that I completely agree with, is that you know, hiring on the basis of the Rolodex or the, the contacts, which to me is one of the laziest, severest crimes of all that a hiring manager can make. Yep. Yep. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, these days, if you want connections, <laughs> go on LinkedIn. You don't need <laughs> It's not that hard to find them. <laughs> it's not that hard to find them. Don't hire somebody who says that they've got them. All right. Well, as you point out, the cost of a bad hire are really pretty severe. I'm at, I've I'd read figures that if you're trying to hire like a sales manager, frontline man or not frontline manager, but let's say a sales leader of some sort, yeah, you know, the cost could be as high as seven x their first year salary. Yeah, you hear numbers three to ten times. I think seven is a really good midpoint, but I think it understates the severity of how much damage they can do to your organization, your culture, if they are abusive or cancerous. Uh, how much damage they can do to your sales pipeline, your prospective customers. Uh, it doesn't take much, right? You, you get one shot. And if you upset or turn off or frustrate a prospective customer, you'll never have that chance again, probably. What is the uh, calculating those potential lost revenues is impossible. Yeah. Well, in essence, the cost is too high to rely keep relying on your intuition for hiring. And right. so what you lay out in the book is, is a standardized process that would probably take some people back, even though it's so incredibly reasonable from my perspective. But it's what you have to do to sort of, as I said, take the emotion out of it. Because as sellers, we should know that buyers make emotional decisions for rational reasons. I mean, they emotion, the decision driven by emotion, they, they rationalize it with logic after the fact. Yeah, same thing's going to happen when you're hiring people. Absolutely. Look, an interview and a recruiting process is no different than a sales process. And as you correctly point out, people buy from emotion. And the problem in recruiting is that the gut misleads us. There are so many biases uh, that we all are subject to that in the recruiting process can really uh, mess up our decision-making process. And so making it data-driven and objective is the only way I've found to at least have a chance of, of improving your, your hit rate. You're never going to be 100%, but going from 50% to 90% is transformative. The other issue in sales, which is of particular you know, applicability to your audience, is that uh, salespeople are good talkers, right? So the interviews are even more dangerous because the many candidates are just great talkers. Now that doesn't happen with necessarily, right, with software engineers, right. or finance people, etc. But with sales, it does. Well, it even happens there. I mean, there was an article in the New York Times this past year based on citing research from this professor from Yale that uh, done a study of, I think it was uh, people applying for, for some sort of graduate school program. And they had a, a normal interview process. And what they did is they segmented the applicants in two groups and one that they sent through their normal interview process and the other one they made their decision purely on the basis of the person's gpa yep and the ones they led into school purely on the basis of the gpa performed better in school than the ones they chose through the interview process mm. and it was objective because it was, it was objective, objective. it was yep. it was a limited measure but it was objective yep and what they found is that the interviews just 
you know, let emotions get in the way of making a good decision. Totally agree. I've been doing this for 25 years and I still don't trust my gut because I'm surprised all the time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I agree. So, so you talk about having a rock star culture. So explain what rock star culture is. Cause I think when people hear rock star, they sort of think, especially in sales and maybe especially in, in technology is this, you know, entitled bro culture that, that yeah. you see so much. So, sure. So that's not what you mean though. No, not at all. So, you know, I, I, I had to come up with a word just to shorten this cause it, it's a bit of an explanation, but people call them superstars, a players, you know, I happen to use the word rock star, whatever, but I, I don't like a soft, squishy definition. So my objective definition of a rock star is an individual who will perform in the top 5% of all the people available for the, for that specific role at the compensation that you can afford to pay. So clearly we all have a budget. If you can afford to pay more, you're probably gonna be able to broaden that pool and attract a different caliber person. But if you can only afford a hundred grand, that's all you can afford. But if you talk to 20 candidates, I'm looking for that one, right? The top 5%, one mm-hmm. out of 20, who will be the best in the bunch. Uh, and while you'll, you'll never always pick him or her, you might pick number two or three or five. If you got a process, it's pretty hard to pick poorly. Most of the time you'll pick pretty well, most of the time and a rock star culture is just an extension of that, right? It's just trying to put a rock star in every single seat. And I like the the description too, is, is for people listening to this, is, you know, pay attention to what Jeff just said is, is that it's, you could have somebody that's an A player at you know, hundred grand a year. They're not going to be an A player at the 200 grand a year position. Correct. But, and, and, and even within different companies, sure. right? Uh, I've recruited sales reps or heads of sales from one company to another they were a rock star at one company and they're not at the other. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, so it's, it's predictive, right? If they've been a rock star at four companies in a row, odds are they're going to do well at this next one, but only if you ensure uh, that they're set up for success. Yeah. But I love the, the conceptual ideas that for people to think about is, you know, within every, let's say salary band, if you will, there are a players. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So based on what you can afford, it doesn't mean I can only get an A, but, you know, if you have 100K to spend, yeah, if you can spend 200K, you might get a better person. You don't have 200K to spend. You can still get the best players for the 100 grand with the standard I, process. Yep. And ironically, where I prefer to find those people is up-and-comers, not age-related, but up-and-comers who will see this as a great opportunity and a great role and great compensation. So given the choice between Someone who's already in the same role, the same title, same compensation at a hundred thousand. I'll take the eighty k individual who will see this as wow, a big advance, a big step up. Uh, quite often, those are the those are the up and coming rock stars that you want to identify. Or well, I haven't had tremendous success in my careers, and again, I was working primarily in technology fields, but I'd get the rock stars out of customer service and out of engineering yep. and bring them yep. to sales. That's another place to a great place to get them. Yep. I mean, because they were looking for that next oomph in their career, and and maybe it wasn't there in engineering or in customer service, but yeah, you know, if they got comfortable with the idea of uh, being in sales, then yeah, they I've had great success. So I I agree. So one thing that that yeah, you know, we talk about the rock star culture, the top performers. 
and you and I touched on this in an earlier discussion you and I had before I start recording this, but you know, the importance of good people, you know, values and character. And and how do you how do you mesh that into this whole process? Because you know, we're gonna talk about the candidates' DNA, but but is that really part of that DNA? I mean I I read a book recently um written by a guy named Anthony Jam T G T J A N, who's mm-hmm. a senior venture capitalist and based in Boston and very experienced and wrote a book called good people, the only leadership decision that really matters. Mm-hmm. And he'd advocate that, that if you have a choice between goodness and competency, you choose goodness. Um, how does that factor into when you talk about building a rock star culture? Yeah, I, I agree completely. So again, rock star is not about prima donna or attitude. I, I use the term strictly as a, a measure of, mm-hmm is the person going to perform in the top 5%? What, what Tony talks about, and it's a wonderful book that you referenced, he talks about the importance of character, which is a big part of DNA. And DNA is not trainable. It's not coachable. On the margins, very, very hard to change because we are so hardwired at such a young age. Um, Herb Kelleher, who's famous for starting right. Southwest, Southwest right. said – uh, you know, I hire for attitude and I train for skill, meaning he could take any warm, friendly, generous, loving person and make them amazing flight attendant or an amazing mechanic. He can train for that stuff. Those are competencies, right? Now, you'd rather find someone who has some experience so you don't have to train them from scratch. But I, the opposite is not true. I can't train on DNA or niceness, as Tony says, or goodness, kindness. You can't fake those for long, right? And it's much like the other book, The No Asshole Rule, right? It's just, Mm -hmm. do you want to have a culture where you'll look the other way when someone is a great performer? And in sales, that happens often. He's 120% to plan, but he beats the shit out of our marketing people, but we're going to look the other way because we need those numbers. You know, you just, you have a conscious decision to make. Is that tolerable or not tolerable? Either way is fine, but don't kid yourself and believe that you're creating a culture and a, and a place, uh, a special place, if you're going to look the other way on bad behavior. Yeah, and that's ultimately destructive, right? I mean, I was, I was at a conference um, a couple of years ago where VP of a really high-profile startup, VP of sales, was talking. And he said, yeah, earlier this year, it was like in April, and he said, yeah, in January, I fired my best sales guy. Mm. It takes a lot of guts to do it. Because he wasn't a culture fit. Yep. It takes a lot of guts. It also takes always being recruiting. So sales leaders can identify with always be selling. This is no different. Because recruiting is selling and marketing, Mm -hmm. you always have to be recruiting. And if your pipeline of talent is full, just like if your pipeline of prospects is full, you won't worry about firing that top performer uh, because you have a whole bunch of people that you've identified and that want to work at your place as soon as a role becomes available. Um, the problem is when you don't do that and you rely on just-in-time hiring, you you can't afford to part ways with him. And then you're kind of trapped. He's got you, uh, you know, cornered. Well, let's, I want to come back to this in, in a bit. but So I want to go through a few concepts from the process that you talk about that I think are really important. And again, we're not going to be able to touch on all of them, so make sure you go back and, and uh, when we're done and, and buy Jeff's book. So the first one is you talk about 
Starting off with a scorecard. Yeah. Yeah. At the start of the process, you're going to define really sort of, I guess, a benchmark for the individual, I'd call it, about sort of how they need to, how they need to score as they go through the process. Most companies skip this step and they're off to the wrong start because a sales rep is not a sales rep is not a sales rep. It varies by company, by industry. Titles are meaningless. Uh, a hunter is very different than a farmer, right? So <clears throat> at the beginning of the process, making sure that the interview team, which by the way, Google found should be four people, ideally, uh, making sure those four people understand and are, are in agreement, what the heck are we looking for? What are both the DNA that we referenced earlier and the competencies that are required for success in this role. And that way, when you start seeing candidates, you know what you're looking for, right? We can actually score someone against criteria. But I would say most of my clients, before I start working with them, they, they don't have a scorecard in front of them when they are interviewing. I never have an interview without a scorecard because I like to know what I'm looking for. Yeah, well, and part of that too is, is this is a part that we'll jump ahead a little bit on, on the interviews, but is that, you have everybody except for the person you, who say does the deep background dive on the person, but otherwise everybody who's interviewing this person asks the exact same questions in the exact same order. That's exactly right. Yep. Exactly now, right. Now we're not freelancing. Tell me about yourself. Da 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 da. Nope. Nope. <laughs> if you want to make this you know objective as possible and have it data based, is you need to ask the same questions the same order so you can compare. The book, has the, the book has the questions, and I tell candidates, I'm not here to ask you any trick questions. I'll even give you the questions in advance. But I ask them over and over and over. And that way, just as a, as a good venture capitalist like Tony, I can form pattern recognition because I've heard you know, these stories over and over again. I can start to compare and contrast across candidates. I don't even care what questions you ask. They don't have to be mine. Ask some ridiculous question. I don't care. But at least be, be consistent, Right. Ask the same questions of every candidate, and you'll start to hear, you know, answers that make sense for your company, answers that don't make sense for your company, et cetera. Right. So, Mr. and Mrs. and Ms. Sales Hiring Manager, throw your questions away. The ones you think are the killer questions that you ask that you think surface, you know, the aha moments with candidates. <laughs> yeah, you need to need to throw those away. Google threw away a lot of questions. You know, Google was famous for asking engineers. Yeah, yeah the weird questions. Uh, these were stumper questions. Right. You know, how many dogs are there in Chicago or whatever? And they did a long-term study and found that they were not pre- those questions were not predictive of anything. Just as, just as GPA was not predictive of anything, and right. so they threw, they threw those things out. So if you're not asking this, the right questions and you're not asking them consistently, your interviews are going to be a waste of time. Yeah, I mean, Eric Barker in his book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, I don't know if you'd read that one, you know, cites a study that somebody did about class valedictorians in high school about how, you know, that doesn't correlate to success yeah, <laughs> because they're working within a very tightly defined process, right? Absolutely. They're good at working yeah. the system as opposed to having to be adaptable and resilient and so on. So We all know plenty of book smart people that we probably wouldn't hire. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the next thing is, instead of writing a job description, you talk about writing, and I, I like the way you phrase this, a job invitation. So yep. tell me the difference and the purpose of the invitation. Well, most companies are guilty of having horrific job descriptions. They're boring. They are uninspiring. They're a, a list, a bullet-pointed list of must-haves, 
and it's a long, a long laundry list. Uh, Harvard Business Review did a study in 2014 and found that 80% of men won't apply for a job if they don't believe that they match all the criteria, because who likes to be rejected? Nearly 100% of women won't apply. So that bullet-pointed list of must-haves is really doing you a disservice, particularly when many of them aren't predictive to begin with, right? which is a whole other matter. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so a job invitation is a well-crafted advertisement that is, uh, uh, has an emotional connection to it. I actually pay professional copywriters to, to write mine. And we talk about the company, the industry, the opportunity, the upside, the growth. It, but it is not a, um, uh, a hostage letter or, you know, where, with just a bullet point of you must have, you must have, you must have. That's my job, right? That's my scorecard. But don't mistake that for a job invitation, which is compelling and invites rock star candidates to have a confidential discussion with you. Um, and so, you know, most companies, their job descriptions are, are terrible and, and they, they get a very, uh, a much smaller flow than they could. And they get a lot of B and C players. Well, right. And they don't think about it from a sales perspective. So if you think about, you know, we, we can hardly open our emails these days. If you're in the sales business and you know, I subscribe to lots of different quote unquote thought leaders yeah, every day my inbox is full of you know emails telling me how to write the perfect email subject line or how to write an yeah. email to attract a, you know initiate a attract the interest of a prospect and start a conversation. Yeah. Well, hey, hiring managers with this job invitation, you're sell, you're in sales mode. You're trying to start a conversation. That's all it's, you're trying to do. So, you're not trying to get the sale. You're not trying to close the candidate. I just want to know will you have a discussion with me? Right. And so when you look at your job descriptions. I mean, would you take that and send it out to somebody and say, yeah, they'll want to talk to me based on this? And the question, you know, the answer obviously is there's no in most cases. Yeah, most are terrible. So a, a question to follow on, though, because, you know, you're in the recruiting business. So you you talk to an interview, you know, lots of candidates, but you also, most importantly, work with clients about creating these job invitations mm-hmm. and scorecards. Mm-hmm. Is And, you know, in sales, there's a problem. There's not enough women in sales. Yep. And, you know, part of the problem, and studies have shown this, is due in part to the fact that yeah, you know, sales still tends to sales managers, hiring managers still tend to use a lot of this sort of, you know, testosterone laden, hunter, extrovert, yep. aggressive yep. terminology. Yep. Give me your opinion. I mean, I I, yeah. I counsel people I, I, get rid of those because I, if for I no agree. other if, if for no other reason than you know, the way perspective I try to put in people so they understand it's like, okay, your customers are trying to make you know, they're trying to quickly gather information to make a good decision with the least investment of time and resources possible. How does hunter, extrovert, <laughs> aggressive yeah. help them do that? I think those words can really turn off uh, not just women, but some men too. But I don't think that goes far enough. I uh, usually am able to convince my clients to include a link to a very short video, which you can do on an iPhone. doesn't need to be professionally done or anything. That just has authentic, short conversations with some of your best folks. And obviously that should be half women, right? Uh, or, or, you know, a very reasonable ratio when women see that women are thriving at that company, they will, uh, automatically assume, Hey, that could be me too. They, they identify with it. So words can't do justice to what video can do. And video should be part of every job invitation without exception. 
Um, and that goes that goes a long way uh, to to obviously include women in that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, next topic I want to get to. It was the timing of reference checks. I, I, this is what I've been doing forever. I love this. I mean, first of all, you have your backdoor reference checks, which you know people have to. And you stress this in the book is yeah you, know, you have to do this right we have the, the availability through social media to do it and and you include the cap not I wouldn't say caveat but the statement that hey this is there's no ethical issues with doing backdoor reference checks through social media and I agree I mean you'd be but I just to be clear I disclose it to the candidate exactly when when we are you know getting towards the end of the process I say you know start pulling your references together here's who I want to speak with. They give me these managers, those managers, their contact info, their cell number, email. And I tell them that we're also going to probably speak with other people that are not on the list and make sure that's okay with them. Now, we're never going to talk to their current boss or anything stupid. Right. But uh, candidates know that. And and again, what's nice is rock stars love you checking their references. They love it. Um, whereas BNC players, you just you smell it immediately how they recoil when it comes to reference time. Yeah. Well, I think the other big part with the reference checks now, the back door is that when you do the reference checks, say I, I tell people and is the time to do it is before you make the decision to bring them in for an interview. Ideally. Yes. The problem is it takes a lot of time, right? It does. So here's, but so do my the interviews short- if you've got four people devoting time. That's right. To it. That's right. So my shortcut for that is not checking the references yet. Uh, of course I do it you know, at the end of the process before we've made our decision, but, but pretty late in the process. But instead I check the referenceability. So if I know that you are referenceable, I kind of know with a good degree of certainty that the references are going to be pretty good. And the way I do that is on the very first call, just my, my first 20 minute phone screen call, in which I lay again, lay out the questions in the book, right? There's no surprise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I say, if we get to this point in the process where we decide to work together, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'd love to know who your references will be at that point. And they'll tell you. And rock stars are like, you can talk to any manager I've ever had or without maybe my current one. Mm-hmm. Um, or BNC players, you'll notice a lot of hesitation, a lot of hemming and hawing. I can't find this guy. She died. He's not on LinkedIn, whatever. Even if I unfairly reject a candidate, uh, I might lose someone who's great. If they're not going to be referenceable, I don't, I don't even bring them in for interviews, to your point, because I know no matter how good the interview goes, unless I can check references, I'm never going to get comfortable with them. Right. Because I like, I like to validate the information I've been told. And so I ask that on the very first call. And if they're referenceable, I'll take it on faith that those references are probably going to be pretty good when it's time to check them. And I've been surprised. There are some that aren't. Um, but the, the inverse is true. If they can't tell me that most of the managers, managers, not peers, not, not subordinates, managers, uh, will speak with me at that time, then I, I pass. Yeah, <laughs> as you should, right? right? I mean, who else do you want to talk to? I don't, I agree with you. The subordinates and the peers thing is second, second order. If, Very. <laughs> so, all right, so the last question we have really time for to get into, and this is, again, another huge one for me, that I've been doing, and it's it's still amazing. Even through these days, today, what sort of reaction you get from people? But that's all I do: a test drive. Um, yeah, you have to you have to be able to test the people that you're hiring. Yep, absolutely. So uh, the test drive 
is in studies the single most predictive step in a recruiting process, yet it is skipped by 91% of companies, mm-hmm. which I don't understand. So if there's a chapter in the book that is my favorite, it's like picking your, your favorite kid, <laughs> uh, it's this, right? Because it's the lowest hanging fruit. It's the most predictive. You're probably not doing it today, or if you are, you're probably messing it up. And it's not, to be clear in sales, it is not a ride along. I'm not talking about you having a prospective sales rep ride along with one of your reps. That's that's great. That's selling the job, but that's not watching the candidate do the job in action for two days or two hours or or you know two weeks uh, to to see them in action. And that is far better, far more predictive than any interview you could ever do. Yeah, and you you gave an example of the book, and and I've had clients do this as you know for hiring somebody for sales is you have them make calls. Yeah. Right. And right. you're not calling customers. You're calling, though I had one client that had people call customers, but <laughs> you know, you'll have people role playing on the other end Absolutely. You know, who have, and so you're calling into a conference room or somebody on their cell phone remotely or whatever, but you have a scenario yep. set up and you know, they have a, you know, give them a data sheet on a product or, you know, give them some key sales points on something and then turn them loose and see how they do. And, and I think one of the things you bring up that's so, so critical in that too is, you're not only looking to see how they do, but uh, you bring this up and Mark Roberge in his book, The Sales Acceleration Forum, brings this up being so critical. Can they accept coaching and then go back and do it again and do better? That's right. Are they open to feedback? Do they want it? Do they have a need, a burning need to improve? Right. Do they crave feedback? Do they take notes when they give them feedback? Or do they bristle and and keep making the same mistakes and have a know-it-all approach, which I really can't stand. Um, and, and you can not tell that in an interview. You can't ask, are you coachable? Right now, reference checks, maybe a little bit, you'll get to know if someone's coachable, but watching in an interactive setting, which you gave a great example of, uh, and then coaching them and seeing how they do it the next time and the next time and in two hours that you get a very good sense of what that person is all about. Yeah, if it's a more senior role, then maybe give them something that's a little more thought-oriented. I mean, I had a client that was doing a national search for a VP of sales that, that uh, you know, they're expanding very quickly, doing a lot of opening a lot of new geographic markets for their product. And, and so the test we gave, the two finalists, was assuming that we were going to enter, you know, this geographic market, just one piece of paper, just some bullet points on what your thought process would be about how you'd organize yourself to go through yep. that would be the priorities, what would be the steps you'd go through and so on. And yeah, one of the guys just got really snooty about it and said, <laughs> well, you got to pay me a consulting fee. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, yeah, but it's not but, quite how it works. Yeah. But thank, but thanks for your time. <laughs> and, but you know what? A lot of the best candidates, again, just like they like reference checks, they like the test drive. Yeah. It gives them a chance to see you in action, which is great. And it lets them show off their, their work. And, and ultimately, candidates, good candidates, love doing that. Well, as much as, as candidates or as much as interviewers or companies want to see the quality of thought that candidates display, I agree, especially in a senior role. Do this because then you get to see how they think, and it's a two-way street. Yeah, I mean, just because they offer the job doesn't mean you're going to take it. That's right. That's exactly right. It actually increases your close rate uh, to do a test drive with a candidate because now 
they're half pregnant, so to speak. They've, they're engaged. They've seen you, the manager, in action. You've actually de-risked it, de-risked it for them, for the candidate. Right. Who you have to remember, if they're a rock star, they're doing great at their company. They're making money. Uh, they're not actively looking for a job. So you need to de-risk it for them. And seeing you in action as their prospective manager goes a long way to doing that. Love it. All right, Jeff, unfortunately, we're out of time. Oh, we can go on. I had a great time. Thank you for having me on. Oh, our pleasure. So uh, tell people how to learn more about you and connect with you and so on. Yeah, it's all in one place, which is RecruitRockStars.com. That's the name of the book. Uh, That's the name of my mission, RecruitRockStars.com. You can learn it all there. All right. All right, Jeff, thank you very much. And uh, friends, thank you for spending this time with us today. Make sure to come back, join us again the next time for another great episode of Accelerate. Until then, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>